Hello, this is Joe Calhoun from Alhambra Investments. This is the bi-weekly economic review. This week we're going to go over the reports of the last couple of weeks of the year and uh, talk about where our market indicators are uh, and kind of what, what that says about what we should expect for next year. We ended 2017 with current growth <clears throat> just a little bit above trend. In general, the reports of the last two weeks uh, of the year were pretty good. Housing was a standout performer going into the new year. We're still trying to get past the impact, though, of those uh, hurricanes from uh, back in September. Uh, there's positive and negative impacts there that we're trying to get over yet. So some of these reports are a little bit tainted by that still. Uh, so let's, let's you know, before we make any big pronouncements about the economy, we're going to have to wait and see that stuff kind of work its way out of the data. And I think probably by uh, the reports we get at the end of January, beginning of February, that time frame, I think will probably be pretty clean reports and have the hurricane effect starting to fade. Now, we've looked at these things in the past, and sometimes it depends on the size of the hurricane and so forth, but the impact, the effect, you can see it in the numbers for almost sometimes as much as six months. So this happened in September, so you know, sometime in that first quarter we're going to get past this. While the data has been pretty good lately, the reaction in the market indicators that we watch hasn't been uh, all that exuberant. It's been uh, pretty fairly subdued. Uh, and for now, what those indicators are saying is that growth is going to continue along the path that we've been on, which is roughly 2%. Uh, maybe tax reform has an impact on that. There's certainly uh, some optimism around that. Uh, it could move the needle short term. Maybe there's some surge in things. We see things like these bonuses that companies are paying out. Those kind of things are going to play out in the short term. We'll see what it does longer term. I, I think our market indicators right now are, are really not saying that uh, anything all that positive about tax reform. I don't think uh, we, we've certainly seen a step up in, in indicators uh, since Trump was elected and since we've been talking about this tax reform for so long. Uh, there's certainly a difference between uh, where we were as far as our market indicators and where the economy was before he was elected and after after the election. So we know that that kind of animal spirits or whatever you want to call it has an impact on economic growth and has an impact on how the economy uh, functions. But the point is that uh, right now that, that optimism about this tax reform, because it's finally passed, <clears throat> I think there's an optimism out there that's probably a little misplaced. I don't think you're going to see this impact things as fast as people think. Yeah, you got these little $1,000 bonuses and so forth, and that maybe has an impact for a month. But when you start looking out three, four, five months, I think you're going to have some issues with, uh, with expectations versus reality. Uh, so, look, any policy change takes time to have an impact. Uh, just, you know, we don't always know if the impact is going to be positive or negative. We don't always know how this stuff is going to work out. You know, I just point out fourth quarter earnings for the S&P 500 are actually probably going to be, uh, after all the write-ups and stuff associated with tax reform, probably going to be close to zero. Uh, now, look, I mean, people are obviously going to look through that. They're going to know that a lot of this stuff is, is, uh, is one time. But I would point out that a lot of it is not, it's not a cashless. You know, when they, uh, when companies have to, are forced to repatriate these overseas funds and they have to pay those taxes, well, that's real money. It's going to have to be paid. So it is going to have an impact. Uh, I'm just not sure that it's going to have the impact exactly the way people think it's going to. Um, <clears throat> you know, the economy is growing, like I said, around 2%. And we did get a GDP revision over the last couple of weeks. And that GDP revision shows that the U.S. economy uh, has grown 2.3% year over year that's through the third quarter. Now, it's consistent, too, with another uh, report that we got, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, which came in at a slightly less than expected 015 now, this indicator is one that is, uh, it measures the growth of the economy relative to trend. 
So at zero, it means the economy is growing at trend. If it's a positive number, it's growing above trend. If it's a negative number, it's below trend. And the range of these numbers can go up in the, you know, two, three, something like that would be a really high number. Minus 0.75 is actually what we use as a, a recession indicator, uh, but we look at a three-month average of the of the indicator. So anyway, that's at 0.15. So all that really means is that we're just very, very slightly above trend, which 2.3%, if you take 2% to kind of be the midpoint of where we've been since 2013, 2.3% kind of jives with that CFNII number of 0.15. And the three-month average number that we're looking at right now is 0.41. So again, we're a long way away from a minus 0.75. There's no way you're going to go from where we are now with a three-month average of 0.41 to a three-month average three-month average of minus 0.75. That's going to take probably a minimum of six months. <clears throat> anyway, uh, as you might expect, with since we're growing right around trend, you know you get this kind of mix of economic reports. Some are going to be good. Some are going to be bad. Uh, so, you know, I don't know that we really have anything that's really terrible or anything that's really great, but they're kind of bunched around the trend, kind of bunched around the, you know, the averages. Um, I will say, though, that anything uh, on the positive side, anything to do with housing right now uh, is really doing quite well. Uh, we looked at housing starts and permits over the last couple of weeks were both better than expected. New home sales were better than expected. Existing home sales were better than expected. And they're all trending up. Now, we can argue about the numbers, the levels, and so forth. They are trending up. I would point out uh, starts and permits, for instance, are not even at the peak of this cycle, much less last cycle, obviously. Uh, but they are trending higher. We had kind of that, like the economic slowdown that we had in uh, 2014 to 16, which is probably a more severe downturn than most people realize. Uh, it did have an impact on, on the housing market. Uh, kind of that taper tantrum and all that stuff that happened back then, anything that affected interest rates had an impact on the housing market. But when you look at new home sales, new home sales uh, are at the high for the cycle. And uh, now they're kind of back to, at least in the range of what we've, you know, what we've seen historically, you go back into the 1960s, uh, all the way up to present day, new home sales uh, kind of run between 500,000 and 900,000 on a yearly basis. Now, you know, you had the, the, the outlier of the, uh, uh, of the um, the housing bubble where you did 1.4 million or so back in 2005, 2006, around that time. But that's obviously not normal. Uh, kind of normal is in that five to 900 range. And we're at 733 right now. So at least we're back to the middle of the, kind of the, in the middle of the uh, the old trend. Now look, it's still not a great number. You got to think about what the population was in 19, you know, 60s and 70s versus today. And you would expect to be selling more new homes today if you're if you got a, a similar replacement rate. Uh you should be seeing a, a little bit higher number than that, 5 to 900. Maybe you need to be more skewed towards the high end of that range than the low end. But look, we don't know exactly where we are in the cycle. It, this this business cycle probably has a little bit more to run based on where the yield curve is. So maybe we are going to get back up to that uh, 900 level. Uh, frankly, it probably wouldn't take that long to get there at the rate we're going right now. Um, but, you know, uh, the housing market index uh, is is also, you know, reflecting optimism about the future. So I don't I don't know how long it'll take to get to the housing market index is just kind of a sentiment indicator. It, they uh, talk to builders about uh, what the traffic is like in their and their showrooms and so forth in their model homes. And traffic, by the way, was uh, is, is at the high for the cycle. Uh, so at least we know we have people out there looking at these new homes. Um, <clears throat> you know, all this activity in the housing market, though, too, is driving up house prices. Uh, if you look at the FHFA price index or the Case-Shiller index, which is the more 
uh, well-known one, but the FHFA, they both measure similar things. They're kind of different methodologies, but they end up getting basically the same results. 6% year over year is what existing, a median existing home is going up at, at 6%. So, um, you know, new home prices, though, it's interesting. New home prices are actually flattened down a little bit. Um, on, on the existing home side, I think that's probably the prices are rising because we have a lack of inventory. We're running at about 3.4 months of supply at the current sales pace. You know, we normally want to see a number of more like five or six months because then you, you've got a, uh, some price competition there. And right now, uh, I don't know whether it's people reluctant to, uh, to, to sell exactly why they're reluctant to sell. We know there's Lots of things kind of going on in the economy that are that are different these days. We know people aren't moving as much. There's not as much mobility in the economy. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. But the fact is we just don't have that many houses out there for sale, and it's having an impact on price. You know, on the new home side, it may be, too, that it's a function of who normally goes and buys new houses. Uh, it does tend to be a younger audience, I think, in general. Uh, and I think that there's probably a, a lack of income at that and that demographic that may be having an impact on new home sales that's not having the same impact in the existing home arena. <clears throat> you know, and, and these young people out there looking for a house, or anybody looking for a house, really, uh, one of the problems we have here is that you've got house prices going up at 6%, but uh, personal income is not rising at that at that rate. Uh, incomes, uh, another report we got over the last couple of weeks, uh, personal income in the month uh, was up 3.8% year over year, so less than 4% a year while those house prices are going up at 6. So it just you keep falling a little bit further behind. It's kind of hard to keep up there and qualify for that new home loan. Um, now, look, I talked earlier about this. There's some hurricane distortions in this stuff. We're tr still trying to get over this stuff. Here's an example uh, of what I mean by that. And this personal income number uh, was up 0.3% month to month, which was a little bit less than expected. Um but if you look at what happened during the hurricanes, look, here in Florida, uh, after Irma, the state of Florida uh, provided food assistance to 2.7 million people who don't normally receive food stamps. And about all you had to do was go down to the stadium or wherever they had the lineup. I know here in Dade County, it was down at, uh, at, at the, the, the pro football stadium. You go down, you line up, you show them a driver's license, and they handed you, I don't know, however, whatever it was, 150 bucks or something like that, of food stamps. Uh, total tab, yeah, it's about 900 million bucks we spent in the month of October that's going to show up in what's called transfer payments as income to the person that received it. So that income thing is one time, though. People may have received that assistance in September and October, but if it's people that were not qualifying for food stamps previously, uh, they're not going to get them in November and December. So uh, that drops off of the transfer payments. And indeed, in this report, we did see a big drop in transfer payments, and that's probably why. <clears throat> By the way, for you Floridians, uh, that is a federal program. Those are federal dollars. Uh, it did not come out of state coffers. That was something that was funded by the federal government, through the, I, I guess, through FEMA or something. But it does come out of federal budget, not state. Um, consumer spending. Consumer spending was another report we received uh, uh, along with the personal income report. And it was a little bit better than expected. And it, but that was partially due to higher gas prices. The non-durables part of the, of the report was a little bit better than expected. On the durable side was unchanged, though, and that's mostly because of vehicle sales, uh, which softened a little bit in the month. Now, again, could be an artifact of, of what happened with the hurricanes, uh, especially in Houston where they had so much flooding. Uh, there were a lot of cars that needed to be replaced, and we know that we saw a spike in sales in October and November uh, that probably is not going to be repeated. I mean, look, yeah, okay, you got to replace the car, uh, but you don't have to replace it again, so you, know, you buy the one car and you're done. 
so that's you know probably part of what's going on with these consumer spending numbers has to do with that. Um, now the interesting thing too is obviously spending uh, the consumer spending though was up was up it was up uh, maybe because of gas prices but it doesn't really matter why it was up it was up more than income was up uh, which means the difference had to come out of savings and the savings rate did drop again down to 2.9 percent and that's down 21 percent year over year uh, the rate is down 21 percent year over year now look there's a, a couple of ways to look at this uh, you know economics is is uh, you know what's the famous saying by Harry Truman I think it was that said he all, he would give his give anything for a one-handed economist because we're always saying on the one hand and on the other hand uh, sometimes you wonder how many hands these uh, economists have but uh, the reason that is is because there's always a factual and a counterfactual or however you want to term it so look the positive way to look at that as change in the savings rate is hey people are so confident uh, that they don't feel the need to save extra money. Uh, because they don't feel like they need that safety net to, to, to help them along in case something bad happens. Uh, that's the positive way to look at it. And you get some evidence to support that. Consumer confidence numbers are pretty high, uh, kind of at the high of the cycle. They kind of fell off a little bit last month. We did get those reports over the last couple of weeks, too. Um, but, you know, consumer confidence is, is definitely near the high of the cycle. So there's some support for that idea that people aren't saving because they don't need to or don't feel like that urgency like they might have, say, in 2009. The negative way to look at it is, well, they don't have the income to save. You know, they had to spend more. Gas prices went up. They spent more at the gas pump, and they didn't have money to go. Uh, they didn't have extra income to go do these things that they wanted to do, so they saved less. Uh, that's probably closer to the truth, but quite frankly, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, we did have some negative reports too. One in particular was the durable goods report. Uh, it was up, but it was up 1.3 percent. It was only up 1.3 percent because Boeing saw a 31 percent surge in orders in, in the month. Now, I don't remember who exactly it was that that ordered planes from Boeing during this uh, month, but you got to realize it's a very, very volatile number, and it's big numbers. You know, Boeing, you know, buying a 767 or whatever the heck the latest thing is, 787, I guess it is. Not exactly something you just write a check for. Uh, it is a large order, so but they're also very lumpy. I mean, look, obviously airlines are not buying airplanes every month. Um, so we know that those orders are very volatile, and we always do look at transportation numbers. We take out those airline or aircraft orders, and also auto sales, which can, can be pretty volatile too. So we look at the number X transportation, durable goods orders, X transportation, uh, we're actually down 0.1%. Um, and durable goods orders right now are still running less than the peak for the cycle, which was June of 2013. Remember, I talked a little bit earlier about the slowdown that we saw from 2014 to 2016. Like we had durable goods, the drop-off in durable goods during that time uh, is commensurate with what we see in a recession. We ended up not having one because our economy is maybe not as dependent on manufacturing as it has been in the past. But we've never really seen durable goods act as they did during that softness. And it was actually kind of two little dips with a, a little spike in the middle. Uh, we've never seen durable goods act that way without being in recession or on the verge of recession or, or something along those lines. Um, anyway, uh, so the ex-transportation numbers, like I said, we're still not even back to the cycle peak of June 2013. And if you look at the ex-transportation numbers, uh, we're not at the peak of this of the last cycle either, uh, which was back in 2006. Uh, and core capital goods, which is another part of this report, are actually less than they were in June of 2000. Uh, and you know I, that kind of gets to the real uh, uh, you know crux of the problem we have with our economy. Uh, those core capital goods orders. Look, capital goods are uh, items that are used to, in manufacturing or 
or whatever. They're, they're the essential tools of the economy. They're the things that make us efficient, uh, the things that we use to produce other goods. And for the economy to grow, there's really only two things involved here. You're talking about population growth or workforce growth, to be more specific, uh, and you're talking about productivity. Um, workforce growth, you know, look, there's a lot of things that affect workforce growth. We know that the, popular, or that the uh, participation rate has been falling. Uh, part of that is baby boomers retiring and so forth, but there's a lot of things that move this. But immigration also has an impact, and uh, we know that uh, uh, our current administration is not very favorable towards immigration, so we're probably not going to get a lot of help in that regard as far as an increasing population, which could translate to an increased workforce. So we're really more dependent on productivity, which, by the way, that kind of describes Japan in the 1990s. Uh, they had a population that wasn't growing. They have very restrictive immigration, and the only way they were able to grow at all was through productivity growth. Point is that we are not ordering capital goods. If we're, we're, you know, it's 2018, we're still ordering capital goods at the same level as we did in 2000, 18 years ago. Obviously, the economy's changed a lot. It's a lot bigger now. We should be investing more, not the same amount as we did in 2000. Now, that says two things. One is how big the bubble was in the late 90s uh, that we invested all this money in this excess capacity, particularly in telecommunications and so forth. Uh, certainly, that was part of it. That's how big that bubble was. Uh, it was a big one. Uh, but it also says, too, that you know like the economy is quite a bit bigger now. We put all that, all that stuff has been put to use. Uh, there's no dark fiber out there anymore. So you know all that's been put to use, and yet we're still not investing at a rate that really uh, will cause us or create enough productivity growth to create growth at the levels that we want to see, that 3%, 3.5% level uh, that we think we're kind of you know deserving of. So... Uh, that core capital goods number is very, very concerning. Now, look, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly where we are here in, in this cycle. Uh, I will say this, you know, at some point, these numbers, these durable goods, and this is a, it's a very important part of the economy, obviously. Um, you know, I, I get that manufacturing is not as big a part of our economy as it used to be. Manufacturing is still very important. The United States is a big manufacturing company, country. You know, we don't manufacture consumer goods anymore, so it's not so much the things that people buy on an everyday basis, but we are a big manufacturing economy, and durable goods has a big impact on the manufacturing sector. So look, when we look at this stuff, uh, you know, durable goods orders are up 8.2% year over year. Capital goods orders, those core capital goods orders are up 8.1, and those are good numbers for year over year. Now, again, you know, they're not good numbers when you look back over the longer time frame, look over that last 15 or 20 years, which tells us, you know, we haven't invested in the economy, we haven't created this productivity. That's why we're growing at 2% today, because we didn't do these things in the past. If we want growth to be higher in the future, we're going to have to make these investments. Now, look, maybe that 8.8% year-over-year change that we're going through right now, maybe that's the beginning of something that's going to break out and go much higher. I, you know, I hope it is. I don't know that it is. We're going to have to wait and see what the data says. But, you know, it, at least it is on the short term. We are looking pretty good there. Uh, but we've got to eventually break out of that cycle. Uh, we also got a trade report uh, on the goods side. Now, uh, capital goods and vehicles were, were big winners on the export side. And both exports and imports were up. Uh, the import side was a little more evenly spread. Um, I think you do have to consider, though, that the price of oil now affects both of these numbers. You know, we do export oil now. We export crude oil and we import crude oil. Uh, essentially, we're, we're exporting light, sweet crude, which we really don't have refinery capacity for. We import sour crude, which we do have capacity for. 
but the point is that imports and exports both now are affected by changes in the price of oil. It used to be that it was only the import number that was really uh, problematic in trying to figure out how much of an impact oil was having. So anyway, the, the point is that, is that these export and import numbers look generally good if they're both going up. It's a good thing. Uh, we don't really know for sure how much of it is, is uh, you know, actual volume of goods and how much of it is inflation, uh, but it is a positive, no doubt. Now, it is interesting, though, when you get that fourth quarter GDP report, uh, because the deficit got wider, you're actually going to see a, a, a trade being a, a detracting from GDP growth. Look, you know, I, this is one of those irritating things about economic statistics and, and how they're generated. Look, uh, the way the GDP number is calculated, it counts exports as a positive and imports as a negative. Uh, well, the real world doesn't really work that way. And in fact, when we have our biggest deficits is actually when the economy is doing the best. Uh, at least that's been true way back into the 1980s. But the fact is, when you get this fourth quarter GDP report, you're going to see a subtraction because the deficit got wider. In other words, imports grew faster than exports, and so therefore you're going to have a GDP number that's less than it would have been if you didn't include these trade figures. Um, we also got several uh, of these uh, regional Fed surveys. Uh, the one that's a standout, obviously, is Dallas. Look, oil is $62 a barrel. Of course, Dallas's manufacturing survey is going to look pretty damn good. Uh, you know, KC and Richmond, Kansas City and Richmond reports were both down a little bit, but they're both still positive numbers, too. The Kansas City one's kind of interesting because it, for a while there, you know, we had all this uh, Midwest activity and fracking, and so the Kansas City number was tracking oil too. It doesn't seem to be doing that as much anymore, and I think that's probably a positive in the long run. Uh, I don't like this dependence on oil. Uh, you know, our economy has become more sensitive to oil than, uh, than I think anybody would like. We found that out in 2015 and 16 when oil prices go from 100-plus down to the 30s, uh, and the economy slowed down pretty severely. Uh, that was part of that slowdown I was talking about earlier was driven by the change in, in oil drilling uh, activity. Um, you know, I don't think we want our economy to be that sensitive to natural resource prices, to commodity prices that we really don't have any control over. You know, that's where countries like Venezuela and, and uh, you know, Brazil is a very resource-based economy and the economy is very, very volatile because they're subject to these big swings in commodity prices. I, I don't think that's where we want to be. I think we want to be more on the intellectual side of the economy, uh, more of an intellectual approach to economic growth rather than a, a brute force uh, approach to it. Um, so anyway, the point is that, uh, you know, I, I, I've never been a big fan of fracking and, and that's just another reason not to like it, in my opinion. Um Anyway, let's move on, though. That kind of covers most of the reports. You know, there were a few other things that were kind of interesting. Uh, I guess uh, the, the, uh, uh, the farm prices were up 9.1% year over year is kind of interesting, I thought. I have been thinking for a while now that maybe we're going to see some positive changes in, in agricultural commodity prices. Uh, in the Midwest, we've seen farm prices start to fall a little bit. Not, not doing so great out in the Midwest part of the country there. So a rise in farm prices might be pretty good for them. Uh, not going to be great for the rest of us, but uh, that's kind of the way it goes. Um, I guess that really covers most of the of the reports of the last couple of weeks that really had any significance. Uh, so let's move on to the market-based indicators. Now, you know, we haven't really talked about this a lot, but we, we follow very specific things, and we're going to cover the same things in these reports every time we do them. 
Uh, we're going to look at interest rates. We're going to look at uh, uh, you know the treasury yields. We're going to look at tips yields, which are real yields. That's uh, nominal or uh, a nominal yield minus the inflation rate gives you a real yield. So we'll look at tips yields. Uh, so uh, uh, nominal and real interest rates. We'll look at the yield curve, which is nothing more than the difference between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates. And we know what to look for. We know how that changes. Uh, long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates don't move together. And the way they change can give us clues about what's happening with the economy. Uh, we also look at the dollar. Uh, the dollar is very important to investment in this country and how capital flows around the world. Uh, and then we'll also look at uh, gold, which is kind of the flip side of the dollar. And then we're going to look uh, uh, at, at, at a couple, one other indicator uh, in the commodities market, the co copper to gold ratio. Uh, if copper is uh, is performing better than gold, it means that maybe there's a, a growth impulse in the economy. Because think about it, if copper prices are going up faster than gold prices, it means people there's a bigger or more urgent demand for copper. Well, an urgent demand for copper, they're not buying it to stick it in a vault somewhere like they do with gold. They're buying it to do something with it. So obviously, if copper prices are going up faster than gold or outperforming gold prices, that means that maybe there's this idea that there's going to be more growth coming down the road. Uh, and then lastly, we'll look at uh, what we call credit spreads. Uh, credit spreads are the difference between a junk bond yield uh, and a treasury yield. And what we're looking for there is, look, when, when people are feeling good about the economy, they're feeling confident, they're willing to take that risk of lending to risky companies by buying a high-yield bond, a junk bond. When they start to pull back, they get less confident, they sell those junk bonds, and generally what happens as you get closer and closer to recession is that they sell the riskier bonds and they buy, uh, they swap those for safer bonds. So they sell junk bonds and they buy treasuries. So what happens is the, the difference between the two widens as you go into recession. It could also just be an economic slowdown. We saw this in 2015 and 16 when uh, oil prices fell and the economy slowed down. We saw credit spreads widen. And these credit spreads are important for us as investors because when credit spreads widen, almost always the stock market is going to have some kind of correction very, very quickly. Uh, they are very... Uh, tightly tied there. There's not a lot of lead time or lag time. If you've got credit spreads widening, you're probably going to see stocks going down too. Uh, the key there is trying to figure out, are you going into recession or is it just some kind of slowdown? And then you can judge whether you need to make a big change in your portfolio or just a small change, or maybe no change at all. So let's take a look at interest rates. Interest rates, the 10-year Treasury yield, uh, which is kind of the benchmark uh, interest rate that we watch in the economy, it gives us an indication of nominal growth expectations. And the 10-year Treasury yield essentially was unchanged for this entire year. Uh, we're talking about you know a couple of basis points change from, from January 1 to December 31. Um, now, it is higher than the low it set in 2016 before the election, uh, but economic growth was much lower then, too. Uh, it's not all about Trump. There's also the, uh, you know, what happened in the real economy. Maybe he had some impact on that because of the way it changes consumer confidence and business confidence and so forth. But that's something we really can't measure. But we do know that interest rates went from uh, the, the, the low 1% range on the 10-year, 1.3, I think, was the low, uh, all the way up to about a 2.6% yield at the beginning of this year. Uh, we spent most of the year working our way lower. And actually, 2.6, I guess, was right at the end of 2016. Uh, and then you started to fall a little bit. We spent most of the year falling, rebounding kind of in the second half of this year. We ended up closing around 240. Um, 
2.4%. So, you know, really nothing's changed. It, this thing gives us an indication of what growth expectations are. Uh, and it's not, you don't want to look at the number. You want to look at the way it's changing. Uh, if, if yields are going up, it means that nominal growth expectations are rising. Uh, and what that means is it could be inflation. It could be real growth uh, expectations rising. You don't know that we have to look at the tip shields to figure that out, which is what we're going to do in a second. So, Look, uh, point is, the 10-year trading at 2.4% with growth right around 2.3 makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's just kind of where things should be. Um, now, the yield curve did spend, like I said, almost the whole year flattening. Uh, more than anything else, what that tells us is that, in this case, we had short-term interest rates going up because of expectations that the Fed was going to hike rates. But the long-term interest rates, which are not controlled by the Fed, are, are giving this indication about their uh, market's expectations about growth. So kind of in a way, what it's saying here, it, by flattening, is that the Fed is more optimistic about the economy than the market is. Uh, and this goes back to, in the last cycle, what Alan Greenspan called the conundrum. He couldn't figure out why I'm raising short-term rates because everything is wonderful, and long-term rates are not going up with them. And essentially what he was saying was, and he said he didn't think it was a problem. And essentially what that means is he was thinking to himself, well, I'm right and the market's wrong. Yeah, it didn't work out that way. Um, you know, market was right and Greenspan was wrong. And so I don't think it's any different this time. Look, the, the Fed's hiking rates, long-term rates are not going up. It tells you that the market is not buying this growth story. Real interest rates tell a similar story. And in a lot of ways, it tells an even, even more stable story as far as expectations for growth. Uh, if you look at the 10-year tips yield, uh, the thing just goes sideways. Uh, really, since 2013, it trades in this very, very small range, and it really hasn't changed hardly at all uh, over this course of this year. Uh, through the whole year, the, the real growth expectations have been almost exactly the same. Um, you have more volatility in the nominal uh, one because you had more volatility, I think, in, in, in changing inflation expectations, but real growth expectations did not change. Now, again, we look at a yield curve, too, in the real market, uh, in real yields, you can look at the 10-year minus the 5-year, and I think it's about a 10 basis points difference right now. So we are getting pretty close to flat there. We'll talk about the other nominal curve that most everybody else is looking at here in just a minute. Let's talk about the dollar first, though. The dollar did end the year kind of on its back foot. You know, last year, uh, coming into the year, everybody thought two things for sure. One was that long-term interest rates had to go up. Bonds were going to get killed. Bonds are going to go down this year. Yeah, that didn't happen. The other thing that they really thought was going to happen, and I mean, everybody was bullish. Everybody thought it had only one place to go. The dollar had to go up. Yeah, that didn't happen either. Uh, market sent uh, the dollar down all year long. Look, something I learned a long time ago, a guy named Jude Winiski, who used to be the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal back in the 70s. Uh, he's the guy that kind of introduced the, the world to supply-side economics. You'd thank him for that. But he told me a long time ago, he said, you know, uh, presidents get the, the currency that they want. They get the dollar that they want. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that Donald Trump and his Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, both have made it pretty clear that they want a weaker dollar. They think that's going to help the trade uh, balance, which, first of all, you don't need to help the trade balance. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and second of all, the de devaluing the currency is not going to work. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Point is that, that, that part of the reason that the dollar was down for most of the year was because Donald Trump's president. As long as he remains president and continues to think that a cheaper dollar is in our interest, that's probably what it's going to do. Um, anyway, the point is that at the end of the year here, uh, last couple of weeks uh, of the year, the dollar, we had, we had, we had hit a low uh, back in, 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 uh, in September. 
Uh, dollar index went from over 100 down to about 91. We're down about 10%. Hit uh, September, and then we rallied back up to 95. And everybody thought, you could see people kind of jumping on the band. Oh, the dollar's back. You know, the dollar's going back into an uptrend. And I knew this. It was like, well, that's not going to last. Uh, the, the, the crowd is almost never right. They're right sometimes, but almost never. Um, so in this case, you know, you faded that move, and what happened is you, you peaked in, 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 at the beginning of November and started to fall again. In the last couple of weeks, we really accelerated to the downside, and we're back down to a 91 handle now, and we'll see where we go. Um, I will say that the sentiment is not nearly as neg or, uh, negative to, or positive as it was a year ago. The con there's no big consensus on the dollar right now. I think if anything, you know, if, like I said, at the beginning of last year, everybody thought it had to go up and everybody was bullish and you could see it in the futures market where everybody was long futures uh, on dollars versus euros versus whatever, uh, the dollar index. This year, it's not that way. I mean, you don't have any definitive, uh, you know, kind of everybody on one side of the boat kind of situation. Uh, you know, people are still negative about the yen, but they're extraordinarily positive about the euro. So a little bit more split opinion this year. But look, the, the bottom line is I think we're probably still going to go lower. We're oversold right now. Maybe you're going to get some kind of bounce, but the bottom line is that currencies tend to stay in these trends for years, if not usually short term, and it looks to me like the trend has changed. Uh, flip side of that, uh, dollar or weak dollar is a, is a rising gold price. Uh, gold is inversely correlated to the dollar, so dollar goes down, gold goes up, uh, and that's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, too. We had a nice rally in gold. We're back above 1300 We'd had a pretty good correction as the dollar had... Uh, during that period where the dollar was strengthening uh, from 91 to 95, gold was pretty weak. Once that was over, though, uh, once the dollar started to fall in earnest again and gold started to rally again, we're back above 1300 now, uh, up in the 1320s. Look, we got a peak up around 1370 or so. We break through that. That's kind of making a new high for this move. Uh, anyway, point is, when people are putting money in gold, they're putting it there for a reason. And if they're investing in gold, they're putting their capital in gold, you think about it. What happens to a gold bar once you put your capital in the thing? Well, they stick it in a vault somewhere. It doesn't do anything productive. If people are putting money in gold and, and putting their capital in gold, they're not putting it in anything else that's going to help the economy. So rising gold prices are not a positive for the economy. And that's the flip side, and that's kind of the reason why I said earlier, you know, I think you know, Mr. Trump wanting a cheaper dollar is really asking for the wrong thing. In a lot of ways, he's undermining his own policies. Um but uh, you're talking about the copper to gold ratio. Let's come back to that for a second. And weak dollar impacts all commodities. It does have a special impact on gold, I think. Individual commodities don't always respond to uh, just the dollar because there's other things going on, supply-demand characteristics. Gold's a little bit different because it's really only a monetary metal. It doesn't have a lot of industrial uses. Copper, on the other hand, has purely industrial uses. So if people are buying copper, they're buying it for a reason. They're not buying it to stick it in a vault somewhere. They're buying it because they're going to do something with it. So one of the things we want to see uh, is copper rising relative to gold. We want to see people with more urgent demand for copper than they do gold because that's positive for the economy. And that's why, too, the copper to gold ratio is pretty highly correlated with interest rates. If the copper to gold ratio is going up, copper is being urgently demanded more than gold is, then you're going to see interest rates rise, too, because that's an indication that there's a need for this stuff in the economy. Look, copper to gold ratio has been rising for most of 2000 and, uh, the second half of 2017. Uh, it has, you know, more recently kind of stalled over the last month and a half. We'll see where it goes from here. Um, it, it really is not very high, so it's not like we it, it, it's indicating something about some big surge in growth, uh, but it is positive. So 
anyway, I, you know, kind of mixed messages here. You know, you've got this rise in gold, but you also got a rise in copper. So again, kind of back to what I was saying before about economics, you know, and where we are in this cycle, where this cycle has been this way kind of from the beginning. You have some parts doing well in the economy and other parts just not doing well. Uh, and the same thing is with the indicators. You have some indicators that look great and some that don't. Um, been a very, very difficult cycle to decipher. The last of our indicators that we watch is credit spreads, and that's what I said before, junk bonds and treasuries, between junk bond yields and treasuries. It's really more of a sentiment indicator, but it does give us a real-time indication of what's going on in the economy and how people feel about it. And, you know, if you look at George Soros has a, a, a theory called reflexology or reflexivity, excuse me, reflexivity, where he says that, you know, people look at this wrong. They look at the economy and try to figure out markets. And what they ought to be doing is looking at markets to figure out the economy. And that's why, by the way, we do things the way we do. We watch these market indicators. We think that's a much better way to look at things. Look at the market and try to figure out what that means. What is it telling you about the economy? Well, credit spreads, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Well, we know when we go into recession, credit spreads get wider. Because people, if you're going into recession or people think you're going into recession, they're going to sell those risky bonds and they're going to buy safe bonds. So they're going to sell the junk bond side and they're going to buy treasuries, the safe part side. So when you do that, you widen the gap between the yield. As you sell the junk bonds, the yield's going to go up. And as you buy the treasuries, the yield's going to go down. So the difference between the two gets wider. Now, the question is, we know that that's associated with recession, but the question is, what's cause and effect here? Is it that people get afraid of recession and they sell junk bonds, and because junk bond yields go up, it means that companies can't borrow as much money and that causes the recession? Or is it that the recession causes people to sell the bonds? Uh, you know, It doesn't really matter. The point for us as investors is that we know that a widening is associated with recession. It's associated with slowdowns. Uh, well, here's the good news. The good news is, uh, you know, spreads are pretty pretty narrow right now, and they're not widening. Uh, we did see a big widening in that slowdown period I talked about earlier when oil prices dropped. Uh, but right now, we're, we're close to the lows of the cycle. We've been kind of cycling around down here at these lows for a few months now. Uh, we'll see where we go from here. But right now, there's absolutely no stress in the junk bond market. Look, the bottom line is this. The U.S. economy continues to kind of grow at that sluggish, new normal, secular stagnation pace of around 2%. Uh, yeah, we're up. We've been in a range. You know, maybe the low end of the range is 1.3. The high end of the range is maybe two and a half over, and that's probably since 2013 and 14 up till present time. We're at 2.3, so we're at the closer to the the high end of that growth range. You know, when when right before Trump was elected, we were at the low end of that growth range at 1.3. Um, so we have seen interest rates come up to reflect where we are. You know, relative to where we were, say, at 1.3% or 1.4% on the 10-year Treasury note, now we're 2.4%. That does reflect the higher growth that we have in the economy right now. Um, but it's also saying, too, that it doesn't say anything that we're going to get a lot better. Markets anticipate. So if the market was anticipating that the economy was going to get a lot better, interest rates would be going up. And they're just not. Ha it's just not happening. Um, look, tax reform is done. Uh, everybody's very confident. Everybody's very high. Everybody's you know high on the economy. They think things are going to get better very quickly. I think we've set ourselves up for some disappointment here. But you're probably not going to see that disappointment until this hurricane effect gets out of the data. So you're probably talking somewhere in the first quarter before the data starts to reflect the true economy. So maybe February or March you start to see what the true picture is. But this has been one of the longest cycles in U.S. history, and it appears like it's going to get even longer. Here's what I'm afraid of. 
Uh, I think that, you know, sometimes these things are symmetrical. I really worry that we have a long expansion cycle here. It's not a very robust one, but it is long. And I, the fear here is that we end up like Japan and we have a very long recession when we do finally get to recession. Uh, in the 1990s, the Japanese went through a very, very low volatility economy. They never got very big recessions, but they got them fairly frequently. They never got big recoveries, uh, and then they would be back in recession. I suspect that's where we're headed too, because of our productivity growth not being where it is, because we're not investing, and because we don't have the population growth either. Um, you know, until we change the equation on one of those two things. Look, and by the way, that's what tax reform was supposed to be about. Tax reform was about uh, was was supposed to be about getting investment in this economy to raise productivity to raise raise growth. Uh, the the jury's out on that. We don't know if it's going to work or not. I have my doubts. Uh, companies were not lacking for cash before, and they weren't making these investments. Giving them a little more cash in their pocket, I'm not sure is going to change that equation. We'll see. Uh, anyway, the point is that, is that I, I'm concerned that when we do finally fall into recession, it's going to be difficult to get out of it. Uh, and that could be because we've uh, spent more than, you know, we've run these big deficits while things were, were as good as they were going to get, uh, which is where we are right now. Uh, these tax cuts are going to cause deficits to get wider. I, you know, we'll, like I said, we'll see how this comes out in the end. Um, anyway, right now, the good news is we're not close to recession yet. Uh, yield curve is where it is. Uh, we're not flat yet. We certainly haven't seen what we normally see out of the yield curve prior to recession. We have not seen what we expect to see from credit spreads prior to recession. So we're not there yet. Right now, I think you have to expect we're going to continue to grow at 2%. If something changes, the market will tell us. And if it does, I'll be back to tell you all about it here on the bi-weekly economic review for Alhambra Investments. By the way, you can see all the charts and stuff that we post on these, uh, these reports on our website. Uh, go to alhambrapartners.com uh, onto our insights and research section blog, and you can see, actually, on the insights and research section, if you do a mouse over, you'll see one that says Alhambra Research, and if you click on that, you'll find the bi-weekly economic reviews there so you can look at the charts. Anyway, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next time uh, in a couple of weeks. We'll be back with the bi-weekly economic review. Uh, I'll talk to you probably in a couple of days with an asset allocation update, so stand by for that. Thanks again. This is Joe Calhoun from Alhambra Investments. Mm -hmm.